according to St. John. After this, Jesus went to the other side of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because he saw the signs and he was, that he was doing for the sick. And Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover... The festival of the Jews was near, and when he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he was going to do. And Philip answered, Six months' wages would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, and so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, and so also the fish, much as they wanted. And when they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that none, nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when, the sea, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water and coming near the boat. And they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. When I teach students about the travails of early Christianity, we have to deal early on with what is considered the, one of the first Christian heresies, which is called Gnosticism. In fact, there was a time during the first and second centuries it was an open question uh, as to which would ultimately prevail. Now, what we've call, come to call Orthodox Christianity or Gnosticism were vying against one another. And at that point, we just didn't know. 
There were often competing congregations in the same towns preaching a, a different version of God and, of course, therefore of Jesus. It was pretty messy, as you can imagine. It's entirely conceivable that had Gnosticism won the day, there would be no such thing as Christianity, at least as we know it today. Now, you may be asking yourself, what exactly is Gnosticism? Because you're just that curious. And what does it actually have to do with the feeding of the 5,000 in our gospel for this morning? Well, I'm just so glad you asked. Gnosticism is this sort of hybrid version of Christianity and Neoplatonic philosophy, which assumes that the material world is evil and that, 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 that truth and value can only be found in the spiritual. Now, the Gnostic myth is that the earth and all of material reality was created by the supreme deity, and that humanity is unique in creation because sparks of the divine were trapped inside material flesh. And the only way to achieve salvation, therefore, according to Gnosticism, was to release these sparks of divinity from their evil and corrupted human bodies so that they may return to the divine. But how, you may wonder, does one release one's inner divinity from the bonds of its fleshly prison? Well, this, this release of the divine spark, it requires what's called gnosis, right? Which is Greek for knowledge. Uh, to, to be agnosis is to be agnostic, to be without sufficient knowledge as to declare whether or not there is a God. Now, according to many Gnostics, Jesus proved a, a wonderful vehicle for this special knowledge which could set people free from the nasty material world and return their trapped sparks to the source of the divine. Okay, I, I, th that's the look my students give me, too. It's pretty arcane stuff, but it was, you got to trust me, it was extremely popular in the early days of Christianity. In fact, a form of it is still pretty popular in the church today. The idea that what matters is spiritual, that the flesh is evil, that whatever happens on this fallen mortal coil is always of much less significance than what happens out there in the spiritual realm. And that what, what one needs to do to be saved is not to do anything, but to acquire a spiritual knowledge, which is what we might call faith, you know, uh, believing all the right stuff. Indeed, doing stuff, no matter how well intended, can actually, according to Gnosticism, distract you from your real duty, which is to get right with God and to bring as many other non-believers for the ride as you can. 
So that anything that has to do with this world, politics, economics, justice, peaceableness, social arrangements, they're all by definition a distraction from the spiritual pursuit. Does, I mean, does that sound familiar to you at all? It's <laughs> you may be shocked to know that I got into it on Twitter with somebody not long ago. And, and what I wrote was initially, uh, taking Jesus seriously means challenging oppressive governments and the religious institutions that make those governments possible. Pastor Bob, uh, who describes himself uh, in his bio as uh, a contemplative missionary living a spiritual existence, responded to me by saying, but let's be clear, Jesus challenged oppressive governments and the religious institutions that make them possible by staying out of politics and unconditionally loving, comforting, and healing all people's hurt and damaged by them. We should be so Christ-like because love trumps politics. Now, Pastor Bob's answer struck me at the time and strikes me still, truth be told, as an apt description of Gnosticism. Loving people not in any way that actually reorders the systems that keep them oppressed, but loving them as having a positive feeling toward them in your heart. Pastor Bob wrote, Jesus challenged oppressive governments and the religious institutions that make them possible by staying out of politics. Of course, I guess. I mean, that sounds to me like saying that the way to change the designated hitter ruler in baseball is never to go to another baseball game. <laughs> or that the way to get really good at tuba playing is by devoting yourself to macrameing owl wall hangings for your less than enthusiastic friends and neighbors. But I didn't say that. What, what, what I asked him, though, was, so they publicly executed Jesus as a political subversive because of his staying out of politics and unconditionally loving, comforting, and healing all people's hurt and damaged by oppressive governments and the religious institutions that make them possible? That's what you're saying? And then I wrote, no. They killed Jesus because of his politics, not because he was nice. Gnosticism says that anything that's not in the spiritual realm is, if not evil, then at least unsavory. Which brings me to our passage for this morning. Now, John's version of the feeding of the 5,000 is this miracle story that's contained in all four of the Gospels. In fact, we had Mark's version last week. And I thought it might be interesting to see what John makes of the story after having heard Mark's version. So John begins his telling of this story just a bit differently. Jesus has just crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, according to John. He's just come through the territory of Galilee, where his hometown, Nazareth, sits. And he goes up on a mountain, which today we would call the Golan Heights. 
He goes up there to take a little breather from all the stress of being, you know, Jesus. And all of a sudden, he looks up to see that there's this huge crowd that's following him. It seems there's always a crowd close by when Jesus is around, which is at least one reason for the stress. So Jesus comes up to Philip and he says, hey, on the way in, did you, did you notice like a Taco Bell or a Wendy's or something, something? Because by my reckoning, there's a whole bunch of people out there and I can't even remember any place to buy a chalupa. And Philip, being a practical man, says, well, you know, I mean, maybe that's a good thing because I mean, there's so many people out there that even a half year's wages wouldn't be enough to buy all the $5 meal deals that these people would need to feed them. And so Andrew sort of chimes in and says, well, there is a kid out there who's got some bread, a couple fish. And Jesus said, all righty then. Tell him to have a seat and start passing around that bread and fish. 5,000 people, John tells us. Well, you remember how the story goes, right? They passed around the food, and when all was said and done, there was enough left over to fill 12 baskets, enough for the children's school lunches for the next month. So usually what happens in a sermon on this passage is the preacher starts focusing on the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, right? I mean, how did 5,000 people eat off of five loaves and two fish? Did, did Jesus do something supernatural? Was there a miraculous outbreak of sharing? Uh, the people saw that the kid was sharing his lunch, and so everybody else broke out their picnic baskets and had a giant potluck that wound up feeding everybody? In other words, sermons on this passage often set out to answer the question, how? How did he do it? But today, I'm much less interested in the how than in the why. Now, what do I mean? One of the parts that typically gets lost in the homiletical pursuit of the fantastic in this story is the last two verses at the end of this feeding, which say, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. Now, you might say, so what? Well, I mean, what does that matter? Well, John doesn't say anything about the how of the sign Jesus does. What John takes note of is the people's response to being fed. And that is, they want to take Jesus and make him king by, by force, if necessary. Now, what usually happens with, this, with passages like this one is that Preachers tend to, to, to sort of drift toward the spiritual. Commentators argue that John is using the meal here as a way of introducing themes about the Lord's Supper, which, which is true. Or, or they say that the bread in the story foreshadows the heavenly bread that John says Jesus talks about later in the chapter. 
the bread that comes down from heaven, the kind that makes actual bread unnecessary, presumably. You know, I mean, spiritual bread, not nasty old material bread. But I want to suggest to you that these interpretations, whatever value they have in helping us to understand John's intentions in writing, they unfortunately sort of rush blithely past what people in the story found most significant, the people themselves who are in the story. And that is <laughs> that Jesus somehow figured out a way to feed all the people. Now, the temptation is to believe that, I guess these were sort of otherwise well-fed Palestinian suburbanites who just hadn't had a chance to stop off at the Cracker Barrel before cashing in their front row seats to the Jesus show. And now their sugar's dropping and the kids are getting cranky. And I mean, where are they going to find a go-gurt or, or a juice box? Because you know how Kevin gets if he doesn't eat every three hours. No, I mean, the, 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 these folks are Galileans for the most part, which is to say they are peasants, many of whom live hand-to-mouth every day. They either work the land as subsistence farmers or they fished for a living or, or they were artisans. Whatever the nature of their vocations, however, the people who followed Jesus around his home territory of Galilee were poor, likely with very few exceptions. Now, in the ancient Near East, the, the small number of the rich and the powerful, the, the rulers and their retainers, benefited from an, a political and economic system where a few people lived really well, while the rest of the population had to scratch out a living by the skin of their knees and fingertips. That is to say, the folks in charge had a vested interest in promoting the belief that religion is about holiness and, and spirituality and should at all costs avoid such mess, messy things as economics and politics. Because, you know, I mean, once the peasants start wondering whether or not the system is going to give them a raw deal, well, the, the whole thing starts unraveling. In other words, the 5,000 gathered to listen to Jesus didn't just happen to find themselves in a situation out in the wilderness without a 7-Eleven nearby. These were people who lived with hunger and uncertainty as a constant threat in their lives. So as a consequence, anybody who could figure out a way to feed 5,000 of these folks posed a credible political alternative to the creeps and goons who kept them working night and day just to keep their families on the right side of starvation. In other words, Making Jesus king after he managed to feed 5,000 people wasn't a spiritual exercise in which people got a clearer picture of Jesus' niceness. To 5,000 hungry peasants, this Jesus guy represented a plausible figure around which to start a revolution. You think I'm exaggerating? Well, John says... When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. William Herzog writes, If Jesus had been the kind of teacher popularly portrayed in the North American church, a sort of a master of the inner life, 
teaching the importance of spirituality in a private relationship with God, he would have been supported by the Romans <laughs> as a part of their rural pacification program. I mean, that was exactly the kind of religion that the Roman, uh, Romans wanted peasants to have. Any belief that encountered, or, or, or excuse me, encouraged magic or passivity before fate and, and withdrawal from the world of politics and economics into a spiritual inner realm would have met with spiritual, or excuse me, with official approval. <laughs> if that's what Jesus was about, the, the Romans would have loved him. But Jesus in this miraculous meal isn't just, as Pastor Bob says, staying out of politics. In feeding the 5,000, Jesus disrupts one of the political and economic tools that the powerful use to keep the peasants in their place, hunger and scarcity. And in so doing, Jesus offers up a political challenge to the ruling authorities. One that the crowd is eager to take him up on. They want to make him king. See, that's why Jesus was always getting sideways with the Romans. His ministry was by its very nature a threat. In other words, in accounting for this, his conflict and eventual execution by the Roman state, we have to come up with a picture of Jesus as something other than just a nice guy, sort of dispensing Deepak Chopra nuggets of wisdom. I mean, if that's all he were, the Romans would have loved him. But it's because they understood the practical implications of his teaching that they killed him. I mean, here's the thing. Before Jesus ever wandered into conversations about bread from heaven, he was preoccupied with actual bread. He knew that what we all sort of intuitively understand. People don't have much use for your spirituality if they're starving. And let's be honest. People are starving for lack of bread, but for lack of a lot more than just bread, aren't they? I mean, there are little kids still at the border, <laughs> separated from their parents. There are black people all over this country who, after seeing their friends and families face persecution and death at the hands of the systems that are supposed to protect them. They're starving for a little justice. There are LGBTQ people just trying to make it through the day without being singled out for harassment and violence who are starving for the bread of hospitality and affirmation. I mean, there are children all over this country who go to school each day unsure if they'll come home at night who are starving for the bread of peace. And before the, they're able, I think, to hear about bread from heaven, they need their most immediate hungers satisfied. Now, I want to be clear. 
Spirituality is a good thing. But unlike popular interpretations of it, the spirituality of Jesus is most often found in the middle of the deprived and the despairing, in the day-to-day lives of the people we meet. But if an otherworldly spirituality is viewed as more important than actual bread, it's a form of Gnosticism. Because if Jesus is any indication, our first priority as his followers is finding a way to give people the bread they need to live. Because if people die of starvation before they can embrace our spirituality, the rest of it won't really matter much anyway. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.